hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today, on episode 263, I have the pleasure of being joined by Drs. Nimesh Patel and Nick Farber for this Journal Club episode. As always, we review three recent publications in major ophthalmology journals. These publications include a discussion of reoperation rates of patients who underwent primary uh, non-complex retinal detachment surgery in the IRIS registry. We look at the impact of physician face mask use on endophthalmitis after intravitreal anti-VEGF injections. And we end with the discussion of the consequences of treatment gaps uh, in treatment of, with anti-VEGF for wet age-related macular degeneration. As always, if you look in the episode description, you'll find the links that will take you to the websites with those articles. Uh, you also can claim CME credits using the links in the episode description on the American Academy of Ophthalmology website for this and many other podcast episodes. A list of financial disclosures for all included members of this podcast is also listed in the episode description. Straight from Cutter's Mouth is now happy to be back with a journal club, and I am joined by two retinal specialists. First, in alphabetical order, Dr. Nicholas Farber, joining us from Tallahassee, Florida. Nick, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Jay. And his first appearance on the program, Dr. Nemo Patel from Boston, Massachusetts. Nemo, welcome. Thanks for having me. I've been a big fan of the show, so I'm happy to be here. Um, shameless flattery aside, Nemo and Nick were also super cool because we were supposed to record this a couple days ago uh, during Game 6 of Heat Celtics, and then uh, I lost my nerve at halftime and was just like, I cannot record during the game, and we rescheduled, which tells you many things about me as a uh, nervous basketball fan. But we are recording now uh, in advance of the NBA Finals, and I will not ask your guys' opinion about it because the Heat are probably going to lose so instead, we're going to talk about this first article. Uh, the article is, we have three articles to review. The first article is titled, Reoperation Rates of Patients Undergoing Primary Non-Complex Retinal Detachment Surgery in a Cohort of the Iris Registry. This is by Preeti Rao from Emory University at all of George Williams, the senior author on this paper. And this was published in the American Journal of Ophthalmology uh, in the last month. Nick, tell us a little bit about how this study was structured and what it showed. So I thought this was a very thought-provoking study uh, by Dr. Rao and everyone. Uh, so this was a retrospective, non-randomized cohort study of patients who underwent either a uh, scleral buckle alone or parse plane of vitrectomy with or without uh, scleral buckle for non-complicated retinal detachment repair. And this was between 2013 and 2016. Now, the primary outcome was the odds of reoperation within 12 months, and they used the iris registry in order to find the patients. Uh, so they actually got a total of 24,068 patients. Uh, interestingly, 12.2 of those were the sclerobuckle alone patients, and they used uh, the code for uh, 67107 uh, versus 67108, uh, which was 87.8% uh, showing that vitrectomy with or without sclerobuckle uh, obviously is a uh, you know, much higher choice uh, overall. And what was interesting, a couple of things, but the reoperation rate was found to be about equal uh, overall, about 88% of the time 
a single surgery is working when they look at uh, over a 12-month period, which is pretty reassuring, actually, uh, just overall. It seems like we're doing a good job of fixing non-complex retinal detachments. Of course, this excludes the 67113 code. Uh, so when you think about uh, PVR, traumatic detachments, uh, giant retinal tears, anything that's complex involving a membrane peel, those were not included in this study. Um, one thing that was really interesting, they took a look at age and they used increments of 10 years to see if there was age, any age interaction, uh, which would make one more likely than the other. And right at 50 years old, they found that those who were less than 50 years old, the parts plane of vitrectomy group with or without a scleral buckle had a 46% higher odds of needing a reoperation within 12 months. If you were over 50, then, uh, the uh, vitrectomy group with or without sclerobuckle had a 20, uh, 26% chance of uh, higher, uh, excuse me, 27% lower odds of reoperation. And so that brings together a lot of thoughts when you think about lens status, anatomy of uh, the vitreous and how it changes over time. Um, in the primary, primary buckle group, not surprisingly, these were more uh, younger patients, the average age of 52 versus uh, about 63. They were more likely to be female, less likely to be Caucasian, and more likely to be phacic by 87.6% versus 61.9% uh, in the uh, vitrectomy plus or minus buckle group. And so, you know, it brings together a lot of different thoughts when we are thinking about how to approach patients. Now, the limitation of this study, this is a big data study, so there are some just uh, normal limitations when it comes to big data in terms of consistency of coding. Um, you know, that 67108 code that we all use, you're unable to differentiate whether that was a vitrectomy alone or if it was vitrectomy and sclerobuckle. And 50% of the patients could not be categorized into what kind of subtype of retinal detachment, meaning a single break, multiple breaks. Um, you know, and they also only did one eye per patient. So if you had a uh, retinal detachment in the previous eye, you were excluded from the study. So this could underestimate our reoperative rate because that first eye is one going to affect your decision on the other eye. Um, but it also may mean that for some reason your anatomy, that patient's anatomy, is at a little bit higher risk of a complex retinal detachment. But the advantages are this is a real-world clinical study, uh, and this could aid in our patient counseling, especially, you know, they didn't come into the study thinking about that 50-year-old mark. That's what they found upon their analysis, uh, which really kind of helped, you know, they, they actually took lens status out of the equation because it was covered um, once they factored in that age. Yeah, great, really, really great summary. And there's a lot to unpack here. And I have uh, a couple questions for discussion. But Nemo, uh, just what you hear what Nick said, and you read the article, what are your kind of reactions to this study? Was this surprising? Was there anything here that or was this more of a surprising study or confirmatory study for you? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting study and answers a, a very important clinical question that can help us with preoperative counseling for our patients. Um, in terms of the study itself and being surprising, I think it did confirm maybe what we had already thought that sclerobuckle alone works better in younger patients, mainly due to the thought there would be not a posterior vitreous attachment. And in fact, I would like to see in these studies going forward, in, including also pneumatic studies, that that is a parameter that's put into the analysis because I think age is important, but maybe what's really key here in the success rate is it had the presence or absence of a PVD. Mm -hmm. 
That's a, that's a really good point. Yeah, and also other things to note here. Um, I think this is a really important study looking at reoperative rates of retinal detachment because when patients come in, there's not many fields in medicine where reoperation on the same part of the body is really an acceptable outcome, and it's it's very challenging for us to have to explain this to patients. So having good, clear data is important. Um, but at the same time, there are more surgeries just than what has been coded here, the 67108, 67113, and 67107. You know, it's also important to see if there is a rate we can tell our patients about what's their rate of glaucoma, cataract, ERM. Those would also be interesting things to look at. Yeah, really, really great points. And, and like you said, I think that Nick made a great observation about these types of studies. I think very big data can make a big conclusion. It's really an observational study, right? I mean, you're basically just saying what has happened and what happens. And right. It's really useful because most people are just like, oh, my, you know, I have a 99% success rate with every retinal detachment. Like you said, Nemo, when you couch it in terms of patients, we usually say, you know, there's somewhere, somewhere, but success rate somewhere between 85 to 90%, depending on the study for primary surgery for non-complex RDs. And here we have 88%, which is kind of almost right in the middle of that. Um, and that's a real world outcome. Now, maybe there are people who have better outcomes or worse outcomes and averages out to 88%. And there's certain cases, like you said, Nick, the, the bilateral RDs who may have different pathology who are excluded. But this is just saying the real world outcome is about 88%. And that happens when you factor in all the different surgeries that are done, the 107s, this, this scleral buckles, and this 108, which is the petrectomy plus minus buckles. I think the other thing, uh, other big take home point was the breakdown between how many patients are getting a vitrectomy versus just a straight buckle. And that also yep. is interesting because we've seen smaller studies, but it kind of matches what we would expect, where about 88% again of these patients are getting a vitrectomy, uh, the remainder getting straight buckles. So I think that's really the most interesting conclusion. Uh, this is a little different. Nick, you, you kind of pointed out the sub-analyses are done after, and, and they really try to capture the fake status with the age. But this is very different than the pros study and other kind of pro prospective studies or even retrospective studies where they dig into the charts and they kind of distinguish mm -hmm. the patients who got a buckle vit versus a vit because of the fact this is based simply on coding and what you can extract from the registry. But yeah, I think this is a, a helpful study. And again, like Nemo said, I think the most helpful thing is for counseling. It really tells you, you, you again, you should always track your individual success rate to make sure you're keeping yourself honest. But 88% at least seems to be what's going on in the United States based on this study. Nick, other thoughts? Yeah, another little thing they teased out, if you were less than 50 and you were phakic, you had a higher reoperative rate if a vitrectomy was present with or without sclerobuckle. Yep. If you were already pseudophakic and less than 50, reoperation rates were equal. Uh, and so that was part of that kind of retrospect, you know, sub-analysis. Um, but again, how is the phakic status changing the anatomy of the vitreous, um, uh, you know, and how is that playing into uh, whether or not this is kind of that small break, uh, you know, near the vitreous base, or is it more, um, you know, lattice inducing and that we see your retinal dialysis or, you know, traumatic, you know, those types of uh, detachments we see typically in younger people. That's a really excellent point. Obviously, this is a pro buckle podcast, but I think that that is another <laughs> strong argument for younger patients who, as Nemo said, they are less likely to have a posterior vitreous detachment who may be phakic, a scleral buckle not only can get you a great outcome, but may reduce the chance for a second surgery, at least based on the real world data. Nemo, any final thoughts before we move on to the next paper? Yeah, I think one other thing that came up here that was a little bit interesting and maybe something you both could answer is, what did you think about the females having um, 
a higher chance of having scleral buckle. And I know there's been some talk about gender disparities. Do you think that's anatomic or is there something else? Mm. That's yeah, that's interesting. There was a recent paper we reviewed um, by Natalia Calloway and co from Stanford, and, and they looked at sort of a different database, an insurance database, not the Iris Registry. And they found there were differences in kind of the procedures, not only the timing of surgery, but the procedures that men and women get. Um, Nemo, I don't have a good answer for that. You know, one thought that was a different sort of study because they that was based on time of presentation to an eye provider, not necessarily to a, to a retina specialist, and there were different kind of models they used. But based on this study, it really, it's really hard to say conclusions on why that would be. In terms of theories, uh, Nick can offer uh, open your thoughts as well. Um, I wonder if, if some of that just is, I don't know if um, women who are younger are just more likely to present. Uh, are they more likely to seek care? Um, I don't know. And, and maybe that's driving it because that seemed to be I, I can't, I have to look and see, did they control for, for age in that analysis? Was, was that, a, did it hold up on multivariate? Uh, not that I know of. Yeah, so I, I think that might've been confounded a little bit if more of the women who presented were younger. Um, and, and then we have to double check the multivariate logistic model here, but it didn't seem like they accounted for gender in that. So the gender was more being driven on the side of, um, it may have been driven if the women who presented were younger, but uh, we don't know because they didn't offer that in terms of the multivariable analysis. Nick? Well, in one, in one confounding area also may be of all 24,068 retinal detachments, 62% of them were men. Now, this is, they're all 18, over 18, um, but 62%, so almost two-thirds of all of the detachments were men. So the sample size is also just uh, less for females overall in the whole study. So whether that's, you know, contributing to a confounding factor or not, um, you know, the sample size is less. That's a, that's a great point because it's a lot harder to make conclusions between groups when the groups aren't necessarily balanced and we wouldn't necessarily expect them to be balanced in a retrospective cohort study where it's not like they're matching the groups in advance, um, et cetera, to make a conclusion. But, but really interesting food for thought. Uh, we're going to move on to the next article. Nemo, you're going to tell us a little bit about this paper. This is out of Wills and it's called The Impact of Physician Face Mac Use on Endothelitis After Intravitreal Antivascular Endothelial Growth Factor Injections. This is by Samir Patel et al. Uh, Sunir Garg was the senior author in this paper published in the American Journal of Ophthalmology uh, in the last six weeks. Um, Nemo, tell us a little bit what they set out to show. And actually, this study predates COVID-19. That's an interesting factor to note. And we can talk a little bit about what this means going forward. But let, tell us a little bit about what they did for this study. Sure. So yes, this study seemed to be coming at just the right time when we're talking a lot about masks in the country. And they looked at mask use during intravitreal injections. And their main question was, if a physician is wearing a mask versus not wearing a mask and no talking, is there any difference in rates of endophthalmitis? And they specifically focused on oral flora, which is enterococcus and streptococcus. So they looked from retrospectively from 2013 to 2019 at a single institution. And I was amazed that they were able to get 483,000 injections, which is quite a lot. And they looked at consecutive patients and had a comparative cohort. They placed into the two groups, as we mentioned, and it's important to note that the patients themselves were not wearing masks. So that's a little bit in contrast to how we're doing them now, but it does give the study a little bit more homogeneity. A strength of the study was that the injection protocol was fairly consistent across all the providers. There was no other changing techniques in terms of lidocaine jelly, speculum, subconjanesthesia, 
And so that at least was all consistent. And the only thing that changed was the face mask, face mask of the physician. So the primary outcome was the rate of endophthalmitis in the two groups. And they showed that the overall rate of endophthalmitis was no different between the two groups. However, they did find that there were more oral flora-related endophthalmitis in the no-talking, no-face-mask group when compared to those using face masks. It's important to note that this was not statistically significant um, due to the imbalance in sample size, but it's something to think about that there was a trend towards more oral flora. And this has been backed up a little bit in some of the in vitro studies. There was also finding that the oral flora endophthalmitis cases had a worse visual outcome than the no talking, than the non-oral flora cases. So that's something to think about, that if you do get endophthalmitis and it is due to an oral flora, that potentially the outcomes are worse. So there could be an importance to wearing the mask. The major strength was really that this was a single institution, standardized procedure, very large study, by far the largest to date on the subject. So even though it's not perfect and no retrospective study is, there, there's definitely a very large sample size here. Um, that was a major summary of the article. Great, great, great. And, and I'm going to just make a disclaimer from this on. So we don't have aggregators for this podcast, but if we did, I'm going to make it very clear this has nothing to do with wearing masks for coronavirus protection or risk. I am a strong believer, as most physicians and hopefully all physicians are, that barrier masks do reduce transmission along with social distancing for coronavirus. This is simply about do masks during the procedure on the physician's face, not on the patient's face, because that's been discussed as well. Does it influence the risk of endophthalmitis from this procedure? And anybody did a great job describing it. There's some tough things to break down because this is such a rare event, thankfully, that it's really hard to do statistical analyses. But Nick, what did you, what did you think of this study? And do you wear masks? Do you believe in the no talking? What, what's kind of your practice patterns or your partner's practice patterns? Well, uh, similar to probably a lot of people, uh, my practice pattern has changed in the COVID-19 era. You know, of the injections studied here, 453,000 plus were in the no talking group versus 30,000 plus in the face mask group. So the majority of these were done in the no talking group. Um, and I was in that camp before uh, COVID-19. I, I had a strict uh, no talking policy. I was, uh, I was taught that the only two things that can really reduce your rate of endophthalmitis are no talking and betadine for at least 30 seconds. Um, and so that has changed. Now I wear a mask almost 24 seven, <laughs> but definitely in the clinic doing injections. Um, and so it would be fascinating in a couple of years to compare this study with post COVID-19, where I think uh, everybody in our practice is wearing a mask, doing injections, everybody's wearing a mask, uh, seeing patients, uh, the staff is wearing a mask. Um, and so doing this study now um, would be interesting Though you would have the, conf uh, the confounder of patients wearing a mask. Um, so, you know, I did find two things interesting that I do want to get your opinion on. I was always taught that after 30 seconds of betadine, you have a decrease in 95% colony-forming units of bacteria, and it really doesn't change much after that, even out to 60 seconds, but that 30 seconds was the hallmark, and their standard of practice in this was 60 seconds of betadine, and I'm curious if that holds uh, true for both of you as well. Um, and then the other two, uh, I do use subconjunctival anesthesia, and I almost wonder, I, I think it 
helps patients uh, tolerate the procedures more. And I think there might be less induced talking um, just because they are a little bit more pain-free. Um, and I make sure betadine is the last thing on the eye. And then lastly, how do you both uh, what do you do with the mask for your patients? Because I have been taping them down since there has been reports of some new bugs possibly directing the air um, up towards the field uh, for patients. Um, and so I have been just routinely taping patients' masks uh, for all injections. Great, great points. And Nemo, I'll get your thoughts in a second. I, I think that, uh, and I'll work backwards. You talked about the patients maybe with their masks rebreathing to the eyes without that seal. They mentioned that in the discussion. That's something that's been brought up. I think taping the mask is extremely valuable, not just to potentially reduce that risk, but it's the cheapest anti-fog you can get for your indirect lenses at the slit lamp and with the, in, the, the indirect ophthalmoscope. Um, so I agree with the taping. Regarding anesthesia, there have been, there's one study that showed subcontractable anesthesia versus gel. There was a higher incidence of endothelitis with gel. Um, and But that was presumed to be maybe due to the barrier, maybe the lidocaine locally, something to do with that. But it's an interesting theory that maybe the patients talk less if they're more comfortable. Uh, though there are plenty of studies showing gel as well as pledgets can be equal in terms of anesthesia in different groups to subcontinental lidocaine. And then regarding the betadine, Nemo, I'd be interested to see your thoughts now that you're up in Boston. Um, you know, I, I agree regarding the 30 seconds. I think that most people, uh, 30 seconds, like you said, is going to kill 95% and that 30 to 60 second is probably not as valuable. I usually do minimum 30 seconds. I wonder if they did 60 here simply to, uh, and they do 60 in routine practice, simply to be well beyond the 30 seconds um, to count any outliers. But I do agree that the data seems to suggest 30 seconds is the kind of the magic number, quote unquote. Uh, though I don't fault them for erring a little higher in case that magic number is different uh, for each person's sort of bacterial pool on their ocular surface. Uh, Nemo, any thoughts on what Nick said or any other thoughts from this paper? Um, yeah, I think the in terms of the question on the betadine, I think in, in the end it really ends up being variable depending on your clinic flow. If some people are having the nurse prep the injection, it may depend on how fast you get in the room once you're called for how long the betadine has been on the eye. So it may be a hard number to measure exactly to the second. And um, for the other talk points about the the taping, I agree 100%. We had a fellow here suggest taping the patients and myself taping my mask during routine examination, and that really has helped the fogging of the slit lamp as well as the indirect. One uh, interesting point here I think that came up in the study was only 72% of the cases had culture performed for endophthalmitis, and I think it's, it's, it's really an important point to realize that you've been in an academic practice where this is very readily available, but it's a good point to remember here that not, not all cases are you having easy access to culture. So it, it you may not get a diagnosis right away. Yes, and Wills wrote a, another great paper recently talking about that. We reviewed it on the podcast talking about whether or not, you know, the culture matters in terms of changing management. And that's the argument. Um, I think if you're in an academic center where you have access to good culture media in a lab, then it may be more valuable. But as you said, depending on where you're in practice, it can be really hard to get a culture result from the cultures in the endothelitis tap. Um, Nick, any final thoughts before we migrate to the last paper? Yeah, well, as someone who practices in Tallahassee, but we have satellite offices uh, in South Georgia, I don't necessarily trust all the labs, uh, especially in South Georgia, to handle vitreous samples uh, adequately. So, I, you know, I agree that sometimes, regardless of the best intent of the of the surgeon, um, 
the pathology lab uh, needs to be familiar with it. And so a lot of times they are not. Uh, and so it definitely depends on where you practice and and the situation you find yourself in. Um, I do think, uh, and I'll probably continue to wear a mask after COVID-19 for injections, um, simply because there are, uh, you know, it showed that the vision was worse if you had these floor, uh, oral floor inducing cases. And that's kind of enough for me to change my practice um, because I want to avoid those if at all possible. Perfect. Well, the last paper we're going to talk about is called Consequences of Lapses in Treatment with Vascular Endothelial Growth Factor Inhibitors in Neovascular Age-Related Macular Generation and Routine Clinical Practice. This is by Greenlee et al. Rishi Singh was the senior author of this paper published in Retina. And I'll just quickly recap this paper. This was a, a retrospective chart review, including over 3,300 patients, adult patients. And what they tried to find were patients who experienced treatment lapses. And they defined a treatment lapse as patients who missed a treatment by more than three months. And they include patients with various intervals of treatment for their neovascular AMD. Uh, and then they matched them with controls uh, from the same time period who didn't have those treatment lapses. They matched them using demographic information to try to match the groups. And then they eventually included 241 in each group, the lapse and control patients, all with similar baseline vision and central subfield thickness and OCT. And the big take-home points, patients who have lapses not only have an increase in CST with the lapse, they have a decrease in visual acuity. And though you can get the CST to return closer to the control group, meaning you can reduce the edema, they generally do not catch up. And there's a significant factor, they lose about seven letters versus the controls on average. Um, and that corresponds to a vision of 2100 versus 2063 in the control group uh, through one year's follow-up. So the big take-home point was if you have these lapses, you're at risk for poorer outcomes, even though macular thickness normalizes. And this kind of matches some things we've seen from major studies for AMD and other conditions where, for example, they'll have a crossover group or the sham group will cross over. And if they start their treatment later, then the vision doesn't necessarily catch up even though CST does. Now this is a little different. These are patients who are already getting treatment, but mistreatment. This is especially relevant in the context of COVID-19. And I'm sure we're gonna see publications accounting for some of these patients who unfortunately just could not get their treatment during COVID-19. I'll let Nemo go first. Nemo, you read this paper, you hear the description. What are kind of the big things you think about when you read this? Does this surprise you? Does this change anything in terms of how you view wet AMD? I think it does a little bit. We have had some studies, you know, maybe saying that some fluid is okay and that some of the blood vessels may be protective against atrophy and does more anti-VEGF induced atrophy and lose you vision. And this study was a little bit surprising to me that, and, and in the discussion, they also show that there are other studies who have shown the same thing. And especially because in this paper, and I really commend the authors for this, of their criteria of how they defined a treatment lapse, and it was only greater than three months, and their definition was relative to the recommendation of the physician. So that's a very interesting design, and it was a pretty stringent definition that a patient could go only three months, and that would be counted as a treatment lapse if that was longer than what the physician had recommended. So it's a pretty short window that they're defining, but it is showing that potentially the vision is worse even with a short lapse in treatment. Nick, how about your thoughts? 
So I, I routinely do treat and extend um, over PRN uh, or monthly. And so I typically will try to extend until I get to about 12 weeks. And at that point, I, I pretty much hover, um, obviously individualizing that as needed. Uh, and this kind of I feel like strengthened that uh, thought almost because I am worried that, let's say we went to four months, you know, six months or, you know, extended out. Are we losing vision uh, that we can't get back? Uh, and so, you know, my first thought was, well, if we go to PRN, if we're allowing more fluid and then we're trying to play catch up all that time, would the effect be the same at the end? Are we losing those seven letters? I also think it's interesting, the lapse group, the average age was 83.5, the control group 80.6, a little bit older. You know, a lot of these people had difficulty coming. Maybe they're in a nursing home. Maybe there's an outbreak in a nursing home. Maybe they have a difficulty, uh, you know, transporting themselves and relying on others. And so, you know, I think it's important to always consider the social aspects with our patients and how they're getting there. I think we've all seen this in our own practices, people who were either couldn't come for their treatments or were scared to come for their treatments um, and how to counsel them. And I think Nemo's point is well taken about, are we causing atrophy with injections and, and you know, the balance there. Um, but I do think it kind of strengthened my resolve towards a treat and extend protocol. Uh, and I would like to get both of your thoughts on when do you leave a little bit of fluid now? You know, does this change right. that or do you still tolerate a little bit? Maybe if it's subretinal versus uh, you know, intraretinal, just kind of curious about your thoughts. Yeah, great points. I'm not that much older in terms of career than you guys, but I'm old enough to remember how the pendulum has swung and it's swung from absolutely no fluid at all to now hey we can leave some fluid i think it's important nemo pointed this out and nick you you also said that it's important to kind of understand the pendulum can't swing too far either because this treatment does work right so you do need to kind of be careful about stretching at your treatment so to answer your question i for me if i see fluid it doesn't mean for example that i have to drastically cut the interval back but fluid does represent disease activity and so if there's a small amount of fluid, and I define small as less than 50 microns, that's what was defined in the fluid study, for example, when they looked at this, then it doesn't mean that we have to cut back the interval. But what I tell patients is I, we don't necessarily want to keep extending aggressively. I generally would kind of stick at that same interval for a few more times and make sure that that is not increasing over time. Because the last thing I think you want to do is extend and then have a large amount of fluid accumulate. Because we do know, yes, intraretinal fluid is worse than subretinal fluid. Maybe subretinal fluid may be protective or at least not as deleterious as we would once thought. But it, you don't necessarily want that subretinal fluid to increase as you keep extending, extending, extending. So maybe for me, Nick, I do treat and extend as well. I just, I stop my extension when I see fluid. I just don't cut the interval back when I see the first trace of fluid. I mean, stay at the interval for a little bit and see how they do. And then the final real point, we talked about the pandemic. I mean, unfortunately, there's a strong possibility we may have another sort of shutdown locally or nationally or different areas where patients aren't able to necessarily go out as easily, but this is a strong argument that there is a huge value to patients going and getting their treatments. I mean, this is one of the big ethical questions we faced as a field and as physicians. When you're shutting down non-necessary medical care, well, do you really need to bring this patient in for their injection or can you wait? Well, I would say this, you don't know what tomorrow is gonna bring. You don't know how long you're gonna extend this patient for. Things really close for long periods of time. and we have good evidence. This is a significant issue because many of these patients may only have one eye that sees well. They may have advanced dry or wet in the other eye. 
And if you're losing vision, if you're going from 2060 to 2100, and for example, you're better seeing eye, that will drastically not only change your quality of life, but other things such as your ability to, to be independent, your ability to drive if you're going from 2030 or 2040 vision to worse than 2070 vision in the state of Florida. And decreased vision is associated with other medical issues. Um, so I think this is a really, really valuable paper and very, very topical given the time that we're living in. Nemo, other thoughts? Yeah, and I think what this study really brings up, and this was pre-COVID, and I'm sure we're having more of this during COVID. And the question is, how do you combat this? And there's been a lot of models. And one thing that has been brought up is if it's an access issue and the older patients were the ones that were less likely to follow up, if it's a really a distance and an access issue, does the hybrid visit model solve this a little bit where you could have the patient come close to their home to an office nearby, get a vision pressure OCT photo, and at least monitor patients a little bit better? That way would there be a better chance of having compliance from these older patients that they didn't have to go as far or could they have a family member bring them if it's only going to be five minutes rather than a 40-minute drive downtown? So I think that's one thing that comes up is how do we how do we solve this issue and does the hybrid model help or is it really not helping? We don't know. Well, Nick, I'll get your thoughts. I think the hybrid model helps to an extent, but I think the problem is when you're performing treat and extend, the hybrid model doesn't solve the treat problem um, unless you're able, like you said, to separate the imaging from the injection in time, but then that requires multiple visits. So I think the hybrid model is really useful for scenarios when you're just monitoring a patient, for example, dry AMD. But I think if you know that a patient is going to get treatment, the hybrid model maybe is not quite as useful at increasing efficiency. You can increase efficiency other ways, maybe by expediting the injection process, for example, or having patients wait in their car if you're trying to be socially distant. But Nick, your thoughts? I agree. I think the hybrid model uh, for dry macular degeneration, for moderate NPDR, things that we are monitoring uh, to see if they become an to an advanced state uh, could play a great role. But when, you know, for me, if I'm in treat and extend, uh, it could, like you said, develop into more visits instead of less visits. Um, and I think uh, making sure that those visits are maximally, you know, minimal interaction as quick, as efficiently as possible, making sure to get at least 30 to 60 seconds of betadine still, but, you know, maybe that's the maximum. <laughs> um, but, you know, and the other thought for both of these papers, um, there was no statistical significance, whether it's the endophthalmitis or the lapse, for any of the three major drugs. And, and I thought that was an important point. You know, we didn't really see um, any change statistically significant, whether it was bevacizumab, aflibercept, or ranivizumab. Well, great, great job with these papers, guys. I really enjoyed talking about these three with you. As I said, we would normally end with sports talk, but we're not going to talk about it because the Heat will not win. Uh, this is my ultimate reverse jinx, and uh, hopefully when this episode comes out in three weeks, uh, they have not won. Uh, that's all I'll say on the subject. Um, Nemo Patel, Nick Farber, thank you so much for joining and doing a wonderful job with this journal club. I'm sure the listeners will appreciate it and hope to talk to you both soon. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for having me. As always, you can find this episode and many other episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. All 263 episodes, including this one, can be found there sorted by category. 
In addition, you will find links to subscribe to our mailing list that will give you updates on the most recent episodes as they come out. Remember that you can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Retina Podcast, and there are multiple ways to contact us, emailing us directly, for example, at retinapodcast at gmail.com, or by clicking on the contact us link on our website. Uh, to get the episodes to your mobile device, you can find us in the Apple Podcast and Android Store, and that's the place where I go to get these episodes as they come out. Many thanks to Drs. Farber and Patel for joining me for this Journal Club episode. Thank you to Drs. Louis Kai, Angela Chang, and Mike Benincasa for preparing the production and accompanying social media for this episode. Listeners, thank you for what you do on a daily basis. The patients you treat every day, the articles you read and publish, and the conversations you inspire here each week. This is Jay Schreeder signing off. feeling. This is straight from the cutter's mouth. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye.